0: You guys can have a seat. If you are here for the first time with us, we're so uh, glad that you're here. We, we pray that this would be a place uh, that your soul and your heart would just be revived and refreshed. Uh, and that's our heart and our prayer for you today. Uh, but we do continue in our trek through Joshua. We will be in Joshua 7 and 8. And so you can go ahead and turn there. You know, last week we looked at one of the most popular stories in the book of Joshua. We saw the fall of Jericho, seeing God's people march around Jericho. They shout and the walls fell down. You know, it was an incredible work of God. God clearly fought the battle for them. And, you know, so so far in the book of Joshua, it's been victory after vi- victory, You know, If you remember, remember, God called Joshua to be strong and courageous in chapter 1. We saw Rahab help the spies in chapter 2. We saw Israel miraculously cross the Jordan River in chapter 3 and 4. And then last week, the wall of Jericho fell down in chapters 5 and 6. And at the end of chapter 6, in verse 27, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So Joshua, he was on the mountaintop. Like he, with all that they had just accomplished with the Lord, like it's like they just won the World Series or or the Super Bowl or the lottery or they just like, they're just ecstatic or kind of like how Aaron Judge just hit a 60 second home run. Like he's at the top of his game making history, but then when we step our toe into chapter 7, that victory pedestal Joshua was standing on top of, we'll see it just get swiped from underneath him. Now, as we enter into chapter 7, we enter into the not-so-popular chapter where we see God's people, Israel, they go from hero to zero. And why? Because of the sin of a man named Achan. Look at at verse 1 of chapter 7, right after we read of Joshua's fame at the end of chapter 6. This is what it says. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things... For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Again, they went from heroes to zeros in an instant. It's like they just had the breath knocked out of them. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And why? It says in verse 1, because they broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And remember, just from the very beginning... It has been made very clear that obedience to the Lord is essential to accomplish the task. And something we did, that we did not read last week, back in chapter 6, we see in verse 18 and 19 of, of chapter 6, that God made it very clear that the entire city and everything inside of it would be devoted over to destruction. Like it was all seen as unholy. But God did say to take all the silver and gold as well as the bronze and the iron and give it back to the Lord, to go put it in the treasury of the house of the Lord. They weren't to keep any of it for themselves, but they were to give it all back to the Lord. So God was giving them this land. He was fighting for them, doing incredible works among them. But God knew if they took all these possessions, they'd be tempted to worship their new stuff over the Lord. They'd be tempted uh, to worship their riches over the Lord. And So God asked them to put these riches in the treasury of the house of the Lord, to give it back to God. But what did Achan do, according to verse 1? He took some of these things for himself. And y'all, what he took, it was worth a lot. Like, it was a lifetime worth of wages. But it was small enough to where he could bury it in the ground in the tent. To where nobody would know. And before we go any further, y'all, there is a lot we can draw out of our text. But what I want us to see is that God desires for his people to obey him. But more specifically for today, God desires to be first in all things. Which is our main idea. God must be first in all things. Listen, if, if God is holy, if He's set apart and He's all-wise and all-knowing and all-good, which He is, then He must be first in everything. He must be the one that calls the shots in our life. Like this, is the, this is very logical and rational. Not putting God in first, uh, first in all things would be like getting dropped off in the middle of the woods in a land that you've never been in with a world-class navigator that has been in the woods and knows these woods inside and out. He knows where to go, he knows where not to go, he knows where the danger is, like, he knows all the terrain, all of it. And then we say to that world-class navigator, hey, you follow me, <laughs> like I've got this, I'm in charge today. You see what I mean? Like, and what do we, so what we see, from, what do we see from our story today is like with, with Achan and Israel, is that there are things and will continually be things in our life that we will be tempted to place before the Lord. Essentially telling God, who is our world-class navigator, no, this is the better way. Like us telling God, no, I've got this. I know what's best in this situation. And you know what? There's no surprise here because every day we wake up screaming, with things screaming at us for our attention. Things are constantly competing for our desires that make us think this is the best way. All the while, our world-class navigator is saying, no, that's not going to work. Like there's a better way. Follow me. I mean, the marketing industry literally spends trillions of dollars each year, yes, that's trillion with a T, to create desires in our hearts so that their products will become our new desires. I mean, the U.S. alone spends $1.4 trillion every year to capture our hearts, to make us think that that what they have is the better way. I mean, social media is, a great, is great at showing us how we're left out or not included or don't have what someone else has. And we also see the way we, this plays out in relational conflict. I mean, two people with two different desires end up in conflict because they both think that their way is the best. I mean, we, can root, uh, we can root out most conflict back to this idea of competing desires. And this happens with families, friends, marriages, parenting, co-workers. New City, our desires uh, and our way, they often can rule the day if we're not careful. And where where secular psychology in the Bible, where they often part ways, is here. You know, secular psychology coming from Sigmund Freud, he's 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 totally rejected the idea of God. He starts with desires and our passions and says, follow it, feed it, and don't suppress any of it. It simply says, follow your heart. Where the Bible says, no, we start with God. Like we follow and feed his desires for us and we put to death those desires that do not honor him. Unless, listen, there's some good in secular psychology, but the foundation, what we must understand is that Sigmund Freud puts us at the center where the Bible puts God at the center. Because y'all, the reason our desires can't be at the center is because our desires are so deceptive. The enemy uses them and creates lies in our hearts making us want what is not best for us. We start to actually believe we should be the one navigating. When the world-class navigator with us, God, like when we have God with us, but yet when we uh, get the order right, putting God first, the more we look to God, the more our desires become in in line with his desires. You know, we see this idea play out in our story today with Achan. Like he sees an opportunity for a life-changing amount of wealth. He desires it, and then he takes it, and then he hides it, fully knowing it was against the Lord's command. And I can't help but think to see this as a warning and reminder of why the Bible speaks so often about money and our resources. Well, this is not the direction we're going today, but our text draws it out. And so I do want to hit on it at least briefly. I I don't think it would have to do a lot of convincing for us to see how money in our life can easily become first in our life. New city, new city, God calls us and desires for us to be generous, to be extravagantly generous people. Uh, this is God's way and this is God's design for us because we see in the Bible that where our money goes, our heart follows it. That's what Jesus said in Luke 12 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So our heart and our desires follow where we spend our money. I think we get this. The more, I spend, uh, on, on, more money I spend on food at a restaurant, the more my heart gets upset when it's not good. The more we spend money on things, the more we desire more things. The more we give to something, uh, or like the church or or an organization, for like our love for those things grow. That's that's what Jesus is getting at. Out of all the things that can feed our desires, the most our money would have to be at the top of that list. Which is why we say so often here at New City that God wants generosity for you and not from you. You Y'all giving to the church. It's not for the church's budget. It's it's more for our hearts. It's more for us than it is the church. Like, there's no question. If we look to where we spend our money, we'll find out quickly where our hearts and our desires are. And we see this very clearly in our story, that money and resources, they have a very unique way of capturing our hearts. And so in line with our main idea, yes, God wants to be first in all things, and that absolutely includes our money and how we give it and how we handle it. And so yes, in our story, we see money and resources and treasures taken and stolen, And it is good and right for us to take heed with this. While at the same time, this is not just a money talk. This is a heart talk. Like this is a story of God's holiness and God's redemption. But it's all centered around Achan deceptively taking what God told him not to take. So we're going to break up the rest of our time into two different parts. Number one uh, is going to be out of chapter 7, the tragedy of defeat. And number two, the glory of redemption in chapter 8. You know, just like many of our other sermons, we're going to kind of read some and tell some of the story. And so I want to encourage you to go back and read both chapters on your own time. And so, uh, yes, today is going to be much of me telling a story that covers two chapters, but along the way we're going to draw out some insights and applications. So I guess we could say today is kind of like story time, okay? Okay. And so remember, Joshua uh, was on cloud nine. He was loving life. He was famous in all the land at the end of chapter six, seeing the favor of the Lord. And then we step into chapter seven. He kind of gets punched in the gut because of Achan's sin. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people. But Joshua, at this point, he has no clue what Achan has done. And so what does Joshua do? Look at verse two to five. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water." So Joshua sent people to Ai, like a small city. His men get a little overconfident, and they think, "Okay, we've got this. We don't need to send uh, that many people. So just send like two or three thousand people. That'll do the trick." So they send them up, and then thirty-six of their men die. And then it says at the end of verse five, their hearts melted; they became as water. Leading us to our first point, number one, the tragedy of defeat. On the city, they were distraught. Uh, They had been punched in the gut, thinking we were supposed to win. God is on our side, thinking at the Jordan, God part of the Red Sea. All they did at Jericho was march. They blew their horns and shouted, and they defeated Jericho. Now we go fight a small battle, and we're losing? Like, God, what is happening here? Well, look what it says next with Joshua. Look at verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? With that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? Eat. When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Y'all, Joshua was distraught. He was full of doubt and unbelief, thinking like, God, why did you even bring us here? Thinking, why did you part rivers and tear down the wall of Jericho for us to just come here and die? Thinking, God, you did incredible wonders for us to now suffer and die? New City, Joshua was having a crisis of faith. Joshua was full of doubt and unbelief, and just maybe you've been there. Or maybe you're there now. Maybe it's with work or school. Like maybe a month ago you were praising the Lord, excited, and now life just seems kind of sour. Or maybe you were excited about a relationship or a new chapter in your life or a new opportunity and things were going really well and now you're thinking, what in the world have I gotten into? Thinking, God, what are you doing? Well, that's where Joshua was. And funny enough, it wasn't a unique, unique place for the people of Israel. Like, if you remember, this also happened in the Exodus right after they crossed the Red Sea. God just freed them from slavery out of uh, Egypt, got doing a miraculous work. They faced a little hardship, and then they were mad at God, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Like, isn't this how life works sometimes? Like, the cycles of ups and downs, of highs and lows, and mountains and valleys. New City, this is the Christian life. But as we'll see through all of it, God stays the same. God remains faithful. So Joshua, he was distraught, sad, confused. And look what we read next. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things and they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So God tells Joshua what happened, saying Israel has sinned. They lied, they stole and have hidden things that that he told them not to take. And what I find interesting about all of this, maybe you've noticed it. God says Israel has sinned, as if all the people are guilty because of Achan's sin. Like all are guilty because of one man's sin. Like it it says this a few times, like not just once, but many times. We see this throughout the throughout our text, and because of Achan's sin, one man's sin, thirty-six other people died in battle. Like that, we want to like skirt past that. <laughs> and in our Western individualism, we say, "Hey, that's not fair." But what we must understand is that God called Joshua and all the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with Him. Like God's covenant and promise, it was a collective, community-wide effort like this is where they were God's covenant and promise this was for all of them if one person sinned the whole community sinned against God this was the way the commitment was drawn up like just if one person on a football team gets a penalty the whole team gets penalized if one drop of gasoline gets dropped into a glass of water the whole glass is contaminated And yes, this was a specific covenant for a specific people that is different for us today because of Jesus, but what we can draw from this is the simple reminder to bear one another's sins and to encourage one another towards holiness, that we need to be in authentic relationships with people and to hold one another accountable in discipleship and to see our fight against sin as truly a community project. New City, God did not design us to become more like Jesus and to walk in holiness alone. No, God's design is to grow in holiness together as a community. Listen, a Lone Ranger Christian that just says, hey, give me my Bible, uh, me and Caleb. Like, if God's word is true, which it is, God's word is clear, they cannot be a healthy follower of Jesus. New City, we need each other. Like, we, we, if your brother or sister is struggling, God calls us to help one another and to disciple one another. Look what it says next. Look at, look at the punishment, starting in verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for, t- for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribes that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And, and this is the, the not-so-fun part. Look at, look at verse 15. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God tells them they cannot win in battle and will not be able to stand before their enemies because of Achan's sin. He calls them uh, to take action and to purify themselves. And how? Well, he tells them to find Achan, like find who this person is, find find Achan his stuff and burn it all with fire to totally get rid of it all. And if we kept reading in chapter 7, we see them do just what God said. Like they gather all the people, he goes through each man, man by man, and when he gets to Achan, he says, tell me what you've done. And then Achan confesses that he saw a cloak, which is like a nice piece of clothing, he took, uh, that he took some gold and, des- and silver, that he desired it, he took it, and then he buried it in his tent. And then they go and get it all. They go and get all of his stuff and his family, his wife, his kids, their animals, everything, and they devoted it all to, over to destruction like a truly devastating act and I know as soon as we read this and hear about this we think that sure does seem extremely harsh and just wrong like this this does not seem like a loving God you know one of my friends and, and pastors what he said about this text is that if it were up to him he would have saved his wife and then put all the other kids up for adoption like but he didn't do that y'all this is really hard But you know, the more I've thought about this text, we need to remember where he hid all this stuff. Oh, he dug a hole and buried it in the tent. And I don't know about you, but if I dug a hole in my house, I think my wife and kids would know about it. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if his wife and kids knew about it, but yet didn't say anything. But regardless of what happened, when we come to things like this, we have to remember and just submit to the idea that God is the expert expert navigator. Like he knows all, he sees all, and, and we do not. But uh, we don't determine what's best. God does. Like we can't create our own version of God in our minds. And also what we need to understand with this is that uh, the first, this punishment and curse, this was part of their covenant promise to each other. Like if we go back and read Deuteronomy 29, we'd see that God warned them of this exact thing. In fact, it was part of God's promise to them. Like they agreed to this covenant, like this was not in the fine print that they did not know about. No, it was well known what would happen if they broke their promise to each other. It it would be like telling a child, hey, if you do this, there will be consequences. And they say, I know, okay, yes, and, and then they go and do it anyways. What happens? Well, they get the consequences as prescribed, and that's what's happening here. But then we think, well... Yeah, I get that, but stoning and fire and all their stuff and his family too, like that's a bit extra. But what we see through through the entire Old Testament is that God is extremely holy and that he absolutely despises any wrongdoing and any disobedience. Like from the beginning of time, the punishment of sin has always been death, always. And we could say that God's extreme holiness demands that sin be put to death. Because in order to rid out sin, it must be put to death. Okay, I want to I slow down here and kind of step back and tell you a story for a minute or two, just to illustrate this idea, okay? You know, we got a hamster this past summer. Like, it was a cute little thing, light brown, fluffy. We named the hamster Maple. Well, come to find out, Maple is an escape artist. Like five or six times she found a way to escape her cage, either by chewing through the plastic or kind of popping open the plastic top or or the door wouldn't be shut all the way and she'd escape. Well, you know, I thought our cat would would catch her, kind of like the Tom and Jerry style, but that didn't work. You know, we went up to North Carolina for two weeks this past summer and she was out the entire time. We had no clue where she was. Like we thought she was living in the wall. You know, for several weeks we kept finding her, putting her back in the cage, trying to better secure the cage. We actually got a second cage uh, and she got out of that one too you know, at least three times we found her in our bed, okay? Like, Kelly jumped up in the middle of the night screaming and just manhandled the thing, screaming, Eric, I got it, I got the hamster. Like, it was truly a proud moment. We put it in the cage, the next morning it was, it was gone again. Like, this hamster, it was outside of the cage more than inside of the cage. It chewed through some of our carpet, eating the cat's food. I mean, just a total nuisance, and then finally, after being gone, like, like it was out of the cage for like three or four weeks, eating the cat food to stay alive. We caught it. We put it in a new cage, zip tied it shut, put the thing outside with a wood board and rocks on top so it couldn't escape. Like it was outside for about two weeks. I was feeding it, you know. But what happened? It clawed its way out. It scratched the wood board. It moved the board and escaped. And, you know, I thought about listing this thing on Facebook Marketplace as a magic hamster. Like it is a true escape artist. It was gone for several days outside. I thought for sure it was eaten by a hawk. Well, last week it was late at night. I was in my garage for the hurricane and, and walks in Maple. Like I, I tried to grab it. I tried to get it, but was not going to like, I was not going to turn the garage upside down trying to catch this thing. So what did I do? I just let it stay in our garage loose during the hurricane shelter in place. And I gave it food and water. Thought I was being nice. And I'm not sure if this is sad or thrilling, but the Maple Saga, it is finally over. This week for good. I found her in the garage laying just ever so still. Her adventures were over, and I took her directly to the trash can. And I sadly, sadly and quietly celebrated. <laughs> so what do we learn from this? Well, first mistake, getting the hamster, right? Second mistake, getting a cheap cage. And and third mistake, number three, keeping the thing alive. Like keeping it anywhere remotely near our house. Like we needed to totally get rid of the hamster. We thought maybe we can manage the hamster. Maybe we could get a better cage. We'd look at it and think, after we catch it, we'll think, well, it is kind of cute. Well, thinking that just maybe a hamster would learn a lesson. But no, New City, it did not learn its lesson it kept being a total nuisance. We needed to totally get rid of the nuisance. We needed to make the hard decision and totally get rid of the thing. And New City, this is how sin works. It looks cute and fluffy, like we think we can manage it, maybe keep it locked up in a cage and bring it out from time to time. But no, it must be put to death. And as John Owen said, either we, if we don't kill sin, it will kill us. You know what? We see God do this with Israel and Achan. Like, this was an agonizing decision. But this shows the holiness of God and the extreme danger and destruction of sin. Like, God knows we can't wholeheartedly follow Him and then keep sin close by. Like, it needs to be totally removed. And so, how do we get rid of sin in our life? How does God get rid of sin? He puts it to death, He totally gets rid of sin. He takes it and he totally removes it from his people by means of death y'all even if the punishment is devastating when Achan sinned God still had to deal with the sin and totally remove it entirely from his people like God knew he couldn't do what we did with the hamster by keeping the thing alive No, God's punishment matched the crime, and so when we see extreme devastation and punishment like this, especially in the Old Testament, it should immediately lead us to reflect on God's holiness and God's standard for us. Whenever we see extreme cases in the Bible, it should lead us to reflect on the opposite end of the spectrum. Church, when we see sin being dealt with in extreme punishment, we should know that the exact same extreme goes to the other side. And church, for us today, as a New Testament Christian, like, this is such good news. Like, this is baffling it's so good. Because you and I, in our sin, just one of our sins, we deserve the same penalty that Achan received, which is death and total destruction. And y'all, we see this type of punishment for sin over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's not just a one-off thing. It's repeated. But when Jesus came on the scene and proclaimed, like we saw in the book of John, that he is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world, when he said that because, because of all that we see in the Old Testament, when Jesus said that, he was immediately proclaiming a death warrant for himself. Because taking away the sins of the world meant taking the punishment for all of those same sins. And so when we look to the stoning and burning of Achan and his family and think that's not fair, our eyes should immediately look to the cross with the same judgment as Jesus hung there dying and bleeding and gasping for air. We should be thinking with Jesus, that's not fair. The innocent son of God died a death he did not deserve. But Do you know the difference between Achan and Jesus? Jesus was innocent, but Achan was not. Achan was guilty but yet Jesus as totally innocent stayed on the cross and died not because it was fair but because he wanted to rescue us from our punishment that we deserve. Achan's stoning and burning and Jesus at the cross are all on one side of the spectrum of God's extreme punishment but on the other side of the of the of the spectrum is God's extreme blessing it's God's extreme holiness and goodness. And because Achan died, ridding out sin from among God's people, the people of God, as we see in chapter 8, get to experience the blessing of God's redemption and favor. And New City, this is the gospel on display. Us today, because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he gave us a way to rid out sin from among us so that we too can experience God's blessing and favor and redemption. But New City, it's not just once, it's forever forever. Like, this is an everyday reoccurring theme. Every day, the cross keeps us from the grave of sin and death, and it gives us redemption and newness to experience the smile in the face of God. You see, the cross of Jesus turns God's anger away from us and onto Jesus, and then gives us the smile that Jesus earned. God looks at us as he sees his innocent son Jesus. Like, because of the cross, he looks at us when we have faith in Jesus and he smiles at us as his beloved children. Y'all, that is grace. The punishment of sin is extreme, but, church, so is God's grace. When we dilute the extremity of sin, we dilute the extremity of God's grace. If one man's sin deserves stoning and complete destruction, church, think about the grace of God to do that for every Christian every day all over the world so that we can know and experience the smile of God. You know, I said this last week, and I want to say it again. Yes, our sin is great, but the grace of God in Jesus, it is always greater than our sin. And in response to God's grace for us, bringing this all full circle to our main idea, God's desire for us is to keep him first in all things. Achan didn't put God first. No, he put his desires and his wealth first. And we saw the end result. you New City, Jesus, Jesus didn't die so he could be second fiddle. No, he died and shows us grace that he, so he could be first chair. Jesus died so our desires would be his desires. He died to transform us into his image and to redeem us and use us for his purposes. And in order for God to transform us and redeem us and use us for his purposes... Jesus must be first in all things. And so, as soon as the people of Israel dealt with their sin and disobedience, totally getting rid of it, look what happened starting in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So when God's people dealt with their sin and disobedience, God's favor was upon them yet again, showing us number two, the glory of redemption. Church, at the beginning of chapter seven, the face of God was turned away from them and they were defeated because of the sin in their midst. But because their sin was dealt with, The face of God, the smile of God was shining on them yet again. And redemption could happen. Like this is the gospel. Israel's enemy that defeated them in the past would soon be defeated because sin was put to death. And so what what did God uh, say to Joshua? He said, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all your fighting men to go and seize the city. And as the chapter continues, we see them do just that. They go and seize the city like they had a full-on ambush. Look what it says in verse 3, starting in verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose and go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they came out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it to your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. And then as the chapter continues, we see them do exactly what it says. They they execute the Lord's plans. And at the end of chapter 8, Kind of skipping ahead, we see them take the law of Moses, they make a copy of it, and they set it in front of all the people so everyone knows, again, all parts of the law. And it says in verse 34, he read all of the blessings and all of the cursings to everyone, like all the kids, all the women, the sojourners, they knew the law, so they all knew it. Like they were all, every single one of them was held responsible for all the blessings and all the cursings. But something I want to note about this battle was that in this battle, God's people had to actually fight. They had to actually use real military tactics to win. Now, in the parting of the Jordan River in, in the fall of Jericho, it took God's miraculous intervention. But in this instance, it took clear, clever strategy and a lot of effort and sweat to accomplish the Lord, the Lord's work. Yes, God still needed to show up, and he did in a mighty way. But regardless, in both instances, obedience to the Lord was required. But I wanted to point this out. Because as we look at how God works in his redemption, we must see here that God uses all sorts of ways. Like God's plan happens through miraculous intervention, but he also accomplishes his plans through strategy and planning and just good old hard work. And so it is good for us to see this because as we look into our own lives— longing for redemption, longing for God to defeat sin in our life and to restore maybe relationships in our life or to save someone that we know. I think if we're honest, our preferred path would be how God worked at the Jordan River and at Jericho, where God really does all of the heavy lifting and maybe not so much how God worked at AI, where confession and repentance and making really hard choices to change were necessary. And how just hard work and endurance were necessary to complete the task God called them. Yes, God promised them victory, but they still had to go out and fight and use military strategy. Yo, I'm all for miraculous, immediate intervention that immediately displays the power of God. I pray for it, and we should all pray for it. But what if God's method of redemption in our life or in the lives of others to defeat sin uh, and to invest in relationships and to restore relationships and to see people come to Christ, what if it took a lot of hard work and effort? What if it took making really hard choices to change things in our life? I think we could say it this way. God's redemptive work happens through both extraordinary ways and very ordinary ways. So no, God is not calling us to stone anybody today and set a whole city on fire. Praise the Lord. But you know what? God is calling us to make hard choices and to put things to death in our life. Yes, obedience to God was essential, but God's people still had to go out to battle with the field of sword. Like They still had to go hide in the valley. The battle of AI is not one of those great, well-remembered battles, but yet it's one of the battles that has more details than the others, and so it's significant. And I can't help but think of the wisdom and fighting effort and hard choices it will take to see redemption happen for us. Like the relationships in our life, the cross calls us to restoration, the cross leads us to forgiveness, and the cross calls us to love when it's hard to love, and yes, God could change our heart and miraculously change our desires in an instant. And I want, to pray for, I want us to pray for that. But I also know we, we, we may need a well-advised plan that takes a lot of fighting effort to execute restoration in our lives. The same thing is true for fighting sin or some sort of hard maybe circumstance. Like we pray for God to change us overnight, but we also know that it could take a, a well-advised plan and fighting effort to see the glory of redemption or what about seeing someone come to faith in Jesus? Y'all, we pray for quick and immediate salvations. They happen all the time. We should pray for them. But it may take someone being loved on for three years, hearing the gospel a hundred times with a lot of effort on our part, for them to respond in faith. Y'all, that's my story. And you know what? That's also how redemption works. But in all of this, we can't, what we can't miss today as we end our time is that the cross of Jesus is the necessary element to all of our effort. Just like if Israel never rooted out Achan, redemption in the battlefield, it never would have been possible. And church, if Jesus never went to the cross, full redemption in our battlefields would never be won. The battlefields of our relationships and fighting sin and ministry, whatever the battlefield is that God has called us to, we cannot miss that full redemption will never be possible. Yes, things can improve. But in the end, Jesus restores all things fully and entirely and so if Jesus didn't go to the cross the smile and favor of God is not on our life where all things in the end are fully restored you know we saw today that Israel went back into battle after they defeat, their defeat because of Achan's sin was paid in New City every day we wake up we can keep going into battle day in and day out because Jesus paid our sins at the cross and it's not a one time thing for one battle no it's for every day we live like this is the glory of redemption and so how do we continue to fight our battles? We put Jesus first in all things. We make Jesus's desires, our desires and follow his instructions. Like maybe today you've realized that like Aiken in your own life, things have maybe just gotten out of order. Like maybe your finances, whether it be a striving after comfort or prosperity and stuff, or maybe you're not striving after stuff but you're striving after stability and security. And let me say these things aren't all bad. The problem is not the money. The problem are our priorities. You know what's interesting about the story of Achan? You know, if Achan would have waited and put the Lord first, he would have experienced the blessing of being able to keep some of the things of AI. You know, God let, if you go back and read it, God let them keep things in AI, but Achan, he followed his desires and not the Lord's. You know, maybe there are other things that have slipped before the Lord. Maybe you're putting work or school or family or ministry before God. Maybe you have good relationships. But maybe instead of going to the Lord and following the Lord, you find it easier to put your relationships first. Or maybe there's something in your life, maybe some sort of destructive habit that needs to be put to death. Whatever it is, New City, God calls us to put him first in all things and to put to death those things that keep Jesus from being first in our life. And so let's let today be the day that we reorient our lives and that we put Jesus first in all things. Let's pray. God, you're, you're good to us, even when things don't seem to make sense. God, you see all things, you know all things, you see the end. God, we see, today we saw extreme punishment for sin, but yet we also saw extreme grace. Father, if there's anybody here today that has never just understood or tasted or put their trust in the grace that is found at Jesus the cross, God, we pray that if they would, today would be the day that they put Jesus first in their life. God, I pray that all of us today would continue to reorient our lives, putting Jesus first in all things. God, we love you, and we need you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.